Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 through 13. Let me pray and then I'll read it and we'll, we'll, we'll get into this. Um, Jesus, I, I come into your presence as your child and as your son and as someone that you've redeemed and called out of the world for your own pleasure and for your own purpose. And I submit myself to you now and I, I am... Um, more committed than ever to follow you. I, I love you. And I pray, Jesus, that you would use me now to, uh, to speak through your Bible, through this word. I trust you. And I also pray for the hearts, the, as you metaphorically called our hearts, soil at one point. The soil of our hearts, that they would be ready to receive life that they would be you would help us get get the rocks out and till the ground and tenderize our hearts and pull the weeds and add fertilizer and you are the master gardener of the the ground of our hearts i i we just come as we are some of our hearts are hard there are some places that we're not willing there there are some things that we're holding too tight there's all of that stuff would you just go in and do what only you can do? But Lord, as we participate with you, would you make us willing? Um, do that, Lord, so that we can receive new life into our souls and that life would continue to grow through all that we are to true health, to the full measure of the body of Christ, the image of Jesus. We trust you with all this stuff. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. Here we go. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of this, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Do you come in peace? You remember Samuel was a judge of Israel. So he came to, from city to city, he went on a circuit and he would, at times, judge that city for things that they were doing wrong and call for repentance. So, it, you know, when he showed up, it was kind of like, are you, are, what are you here to do, man? Are you, are you going to shake us up a little bit? So, uh, he said, I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to, to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice Verse 6, and when they came, he looked on um, Eliab and thought, Whew, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your, all your sons? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. We're not going to sit down until he shows up, until he comes. Oops, I just, I just clicked on a button. There we go. Um, and he sent and brought him, and he was ruddy. And the, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is him. This is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel 
rose up and went to Ramah. Uh, this is a great story. One of many great stories in the Bible that I'm sure many of you know well. This is, if, you're, if you grew up in a church culture or a Christian culture, this story is one of the famous ones where David's anointed the king of Israel. Um, but you, uh, yesterday, Jameson and I met for coffee and we were talking about how the Lord wants us to be better students of the word of God. And afterwards, when I was studying for this passage, right after I talked with Jameson, I went and kept studying for this. Um, I was thinking about how we sometimes, like Samuel in this very story, we come to the Bible with our own standards. We kind of think we know what we're looking for. Maybe that's subconscious or semi-conscious, whatever it is. We come looking for a certain word or a certain message or a certain we know it will we know we'll 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 know him when we see him type of an idea and when we look for for what we want to see so oftentimes just like Samuel what's really there what's there the whole time goes unnoticed we don't see it what's right in front of us in this story Samuel is looking for the Lord's anointed but subconsciously He's using his own expectations and his own standards to discern what God is doing. Maybe he doesn't know that, but surely he is. And as a result, David is overlooked. He's not even considered. They go through all of Jesse's sons, and finally, with the Lord's direction, through this process of elimination, Samuel, confused, because he knows God sent him to Jesse, he's confused, and he says, are these all your kids? You don't have any more? And Jesse, his dad, who's also overlooked David, says, well, there's this little kid, David. He's out, you know, with my sheep. Not even considered. I want to talk about the Bible today because I think it's important. Many times we approach the Bible in this exact same way. We come to a passage like this with some preconceived ideas, cultural assumptions, philosophical insights, things we've learned since Sunday school, pop culture, uh, mentors, on and on it goes. And we often miss it, overlooking the anointed that's right there, the anointed message that's right there in front of us. How do we learn to discern the Word of God better? Uh, and the reason I, this is on my heart is because several of you actually in the past two weeks have expressed a desire to know how to discern the Bible better. I've actually gotten several uh, conversations, unconnected conversations from several of you. Going, man, I want some of you, I want to learn the Bible better just for myself. I just want to, I want to know that I'm discerning it right. I want to know that I'm getting out of it what I need to get out of it. Or some of you have said recently, my kids are asking, starting, they're starting to get to the age where they're starting to ask questions. And boy, I want to make sure I'm telling them the right things. I want to have the right answers for them. I, they, I feel this burden as a parent to teach them the Word of God, but really, really the Word of God. How do I discern that? Um, the elders, we've been talking about, okay, how can we learn to serve you guys better from the pulpit as we learn to discern the Word of God and deliver this message to you? Um, some of you are considering Bible, starting Bible studies of your own. Um, and, you're, and you've come and said, man, okay, we want to start a Bible study, but we better know how to do it right. And then a conversation with Jameson yesterday, um, it's really important. So um, here's what we might do, actually, starting, starting sometime in the fall, I probably will offer some kind of a, a hermeneutics class, uh, some basic principles on how you can study the Bible. I'm hoping that the elder board will be there. I know some of others have... I wanted to be there. We might do it. I, it's still clearly not organized yet, but we might do it uh, once a month or every other week. We don't want to do it weekly. We know you guys are busy, but something that we can all handle. And it's an open meeting. Everyone's welcome to come and learn about how to divide the word of truth rightly. Did you know that there's a wrong way to do this? Let's be real. There is a wrong way to divide the word. You can, you can re come to this, like, like I said, like Samuel, with your own preconceived ideas, and, and miss what's right there. We can get it wrong. So it's really important that we learn to get it right. So anyway, if, that, um, if, that, if that's something you're interested in, <clears throat> talk to me. Let me know. I'm, I'm trying to get a pulse 
on, the, on you guys. To, who want, who's interested in this type of a thing? And from there, we can work out some logistics. What would be best for everybody? How would that work? Let's make it to where, you know, do, do we want to add a Zoom element? So if you can't come all the way over, if you're from the east side, you can come in on Zoom or, or whatever, however we want to figure it all out, okay? But it will be helpful, I promise you this, no matter where you're at in your stage of life, every Christian um, needs to learn how to, how to discern God's voice. So here's the thing. Even if you don't come, I'm going to give you the first rule today on how to study the Bible. I'm going to give you the most, well, gosh, I hesitate, maybe the most important rule. I will call it the one rule to rule them all when it comes to the Bible that you can get started today. It's very important to understand. Each genre of the Bible has its own set of rules to understand. Uh, The Bible has got several genres represented and each is like its own card game. They have their own rules and the Bible will impose its own rule But for our purposes this morning, and if you're in our class, we will go through all the genres and all the rules inherent with them. But for the purposes this morning, I want to give you the one rule that rules them all. And it's, well, I'll give you, let me, let me just, I'll have Jesus tell it to you. When Jesus met the two disciples after he was raised from the dead on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story? He had just been brutally crucified He had risen from the dead. Two of his disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and they're incredibly depressed. They're talking about, you know, they thought Jesus was this anointed Messiah that was going to bring, that was going to kick out the Roman government and was going to be victorious and turns out he just died. Their hopes are dashed. They don't know what to do with themselves. They just devoted this life and Jesus, they've just devoted their lives to him and now all of that's gone. They're confused, maybe feel a little betrayed, all of the things. Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize him. He shows up, and he's walking alongside them, and he goes, what are you guys talking about? And they go, have you not heard? What, have you been living under a rock, basically? Jesus, this prophet that we thought was the Messiah, and we were following him. We were going to go the full way with him. Well, it turns out he just got crucified, and he's dead. And so he's not the one. And look what Jesus says. Listen, this gives us a hermeneutical principle. He says, How slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses, it's the Pentateuch, first five books of your Bible. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in, listen, not some scriptures, not a few key places, not one or two pillar scriptures. It says what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself later in that same chapter if you're not convinced later in that same chapter he says it again he meets all the disciples in the room uh, the in the you know the upper room he he meets them there and he said to them this is what I told you when I was still with you everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms basically that's the entire Hebrew Bible Okay, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. In other words, Jesus says, you're slow of heart because you've been reading the Bible wrong this whole time. There's a wrong way to do this. Jesus blamed the confusion of the disciples on their inability to see that the Old Testament is all about him, all of it, and his salvation. In another place, in John chapter 5, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and here's what he says to them. He says, you, you search the scriptures because you think that, that in them they have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, and you refuse to come to me that you may have that life. I don't receive glory uh, from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in in his own name, you, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from someone else, but you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Here you go. There is one that accuses you. His name is Moses. On whom you have set your hope. That's the old, that's the, the Pentateuch. That is the heavy hitter Moses. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. He was writing about me. 
But if you, if you don't believe his writings, you're not going to be able to believe my words. Okay, Jesus is saying that his father has testified about him in the scriptures. Later, in Luke 24, what we just read, all of the scriptures, not just, it's not a scavenger hunt for some things about Jesus. If you're, if you're, if you're really good at this, you'll find the, the scriptures that are about Jesus. No, he says all of it. Every genealogy, every psalm, every poem, every story, every narrative, every life, every character, it's all pointing to me. But when you, so here's what's interesting. Let me, let me just give you an example. Have you ever ran into this? Have you ever tried reading the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and they quote some obscure Old Testament passage and they say, that's about Jesus right there. Let me give you an example. Um, in the book of Hebrews, uh, Paul and the writer to the epistle of Hebrews, both, they, 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 use, they quote the Psalms continually. One of the ones that they quote is Psalm 91. Psalm 91 says, For he will commit his angels concerning you so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's Hebrews 1.14, quoting Psalm 91, 11 through 12. But when you go back, if you take the time to go back and look, Psalm, look at Psalm 91, you will see nothing at all whatsoever that would indicate to you that that is talking about the Messiah, that's talking about Jesus. If you've studied the Bible long enough, you scratch your head in moments like this. How did they know? How could Matthew or Hebrews or Paul know that that was about Jesus the Messiah? Some would say, well, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Sure. That's, a, that's an answer. Maybe not the best one. Um, of course, it's true, but it begs the question, did it take supernatural knowledge to know that Psalm 91 was about Jesus? Did it take supernatural knowledge? Maybe. Perhaps. But it's more likely that the early church knew that everything in Scripture was about Jesus. Are you ready for this secret here? It's more likely that the early church knew that the Old Testament was about Jesus. Here it is. Because Jesus told them it was. That's more likely the case. He said it. This is what we call biblical theology. It's a right-to-left reading of the Scriptures. It means in light of the New Testament and the Christ events, we look back at the Old Testament through the grid of Christ and we realize, oh wow, everything is all pointing, it all points to Him. So here's what this means for us. When we come to a story like, like this, a story about David, when we start to focus on a life, a character in the Old Testament, um, in 1 Samuel, we can come to it with an understanding about what the Bible is, is, you do, well, you are, you will come to it with an understanding about what the Bible is, and that will affect how you look at the story. The way, what you think about the Bible does and will affect how you interpret the story. You, you will either, number one, you will either come to this thinking that the Bible is about you, it's what we call a moralistic reading of the Bible or that the Bible is filled of examples. These stories are examples of what we should do, of how we should live our lives, or, and that will affect how you read the Bible, or you can come to this and think, like Jesus said, this life, David's life, first and foremost, points to Jesus Christ. You see how that affects the way you read? See, if you came to the life of David thinking that this is a moralistic story to teach you some, like, like Aesop's fables, to teach you some moralistic rules on how to better your life or, or, or how you should live the Christian life. Here are some of the lessons you're going to get from this, um, like from today's story. Let me think of a good lesson that you get from that reading. Um, today's story would be, oh, don't judge a book by its cover. That's what this means. Never judge a book by its cover. You know, it's more than meets the eye. Or hey, God doesn't judge you by how you look. It's with the character that matters. Now listen, that's all true. That's all true. But here's what that'll do. Here's the problem with that. You will leave this place either feeling crushed by the life of David, either feeling crushed by the life of David. It's something that I can't do. Oh, so for example... 
you can destroy the giants in your life. Let's talk about Goliath. This story shows us that you can destroy the giants in your life. Either you're going to leave this place going, I'll never defeat the Goliaths in my life. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I never will. Or you're going to leave puffed up in pride. That's right. You know, big boys get it done. Time to strap your big boy pants on and get this thing done. Let's get out there and muscle it on. Come on. There's no 12-step program. There's a one-step program. Stop it. It's the American way. Yeah. What's that? I have heard this before. Can you tell this is a little pet peeve for me? Yeah. It's hard when you do this for a living and then you, it's hard. It's difficult. But I also think, I also happen to think it's important. Now, now, those things are certainly true and they will give you a sense of meaning You'll walk out of here, you could walk out of here inspired a little bit, absolutely, but according to Jesus, there's another way to read the Old Testament first, and the proper way is, is if we read through the lens of Jesus, you'll get much more out of it than just a moral, moralistic, surfacy kind of chicken soup for the soul type of a thing. You'll get more out of it that, that way. Jesus said that the story of David is actually not about you first. It's about you. So here's the formula. When you're studying the Old Testament, we go from the text to Jesus, then to you, rather than going from the text, bypassing Jesus, and just going to you. That's the moralistic way, the, the exemplar way. We're going to see how it goes to Jesus first. And when you do that, as I hope to show you today, hopefully, um, you'll... Here's how you'll come out of it. You'll come out of it going, man, I'm, I'm far worse than I ever dared to imagine, but I'm more loved than I ever dreamed to, to know. You can't be puffed up in pride because at the end you'll go, oh gosh, Jesus is, the, this, is about, this is not about David, this is not about me, it's about Jesus. I can't, I can't slay the Goliaths in my life, but Jesus did for me. So you're humble, you deal with your sin, you see yourself for who you are, and you leave praising because somebody else, because it's about him, somebody else came and saved you. You see how the nuance works? It, just that order will definitely affect everything. And I can show you how this works even from the book of Samuel, actually. I can prove this principle to you. Uh, so this hermeneutical principle is called being Christocentric. That's what we, you'll learn in the class if you come to my class that I'm cooking up. It's being Christocentric. That's the, that is the, the one rule that rules them all. According to Jesus' own mouth, the Bible's about me, which means all of our Bible study is Christocentric. If I read a passage or if you read a passage and we have not yet, we can learn a lot about that passage, the context, the literary context. You can learn about the, uh, the, ge the, ge the geography surrounding it. You can learn some moralistic principles. But if you have not yet figured out how that text points to Jesus Christ, you're not done studying that text yet. And if I don't show you how a text points you to Jesus, by Jesus' own definition, I have done a poor job as a pastor expositing this text to you no matter how inspired you leave I don't gauge my success if you leave feeling with a pep in your step I judge my success but did I show how this text leads and points to Jesus Christ that's the standard that's the true north so let me show you this in um, in our well in Samuel in the last chapter you remember chapter 15 God through Samuel commanded that Saul utterly destroy and wipe out the Amalekites. Another famous story about the, the fall of Saul. He, and, you know, let's be real. God's instructions, instructions seem brutal. Leave no one alive. I, I even want you to kill their cattle, right? And um, so he was to slaughter even the cattle. And although Saul did win the battle... He disobeyed God in that he let some of the choice people live, he let some of the choice livestock live, and he let the king of the Amalekites live. He kept them too. And ultimately, it was this sin 
of fudging a little bit and keeping some people alive, what some might even consider merciful, it was this sin that costs all his kingdom. God rejects him for this. In fact, in the last chapter, you'll hear God saying God reject, uh, regretted that he even made Saul king in the first place. Samuel's weeping. He's crying, right? Now, that might seem unfair to us, but don't get distracted by the apparent unfairness of this and miss the real and powerful point in the heart behind this. This story is about God's heart versus Saul's heart. That's what it's all about. That's, what this, that's why he lost the kingdom. See, the Amalekites were some of the most vile, wicked, oppressive people in Canaan. They were guilty of some of the most evil atrocities and terrible crimes. And so God comes to Saul and he says, I'm going to judge this culture for their atrocities through you, Saul. But I want, listen, Saul, you're doing this for pure justice. You're not doing this for imperialism. I want pure justice. In other words, you're not going to use this war because all the other kings... And politicians, they go to war for justice, but what are they really doing? They're amassing power, they're amassing wealth. How did they do that in this ancient world? They kept the king alive, they kept people alive for ransom, they kept livestock alive for wealth and power. That's what's going on here. God says, no, 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 Saul, you are, I'm giving you the chance to be a king after my own heart. You know what that actually means? It means God wants a king with his own heart or a king that leads with God's heart this war is about justice this would be more like um, like America going to war with Nazi Germany like they are co committing atrocities and they have to be stopped it's a just it's that type of a thing these guys need to be stopped they need to be done we need to we need to stop them we're not using this for wealth we're not using this for for those types of things um, but Saul couldn't do it. He couldn't go that far. Not because he had a conscience. He kept Agag, the king, alive, the livestock alive. Believe it or not, he was doing the same kind of thing that Agag, the king of the Amalekites, did when he went to wars. He bartered. He took. He siphoned. He, he, all of those types of things. Kept the best stuff for himself. Relished in the wealth of that other nation. Saul was a king just like all the other kings of the land, just like Samuel's prophecy about Saul the king a few chapters earlier. Remember, Saul warned them. They said, we want a king like all the others. And, and he said, and God said, give it to him, but warn them. Here's what he's going to do. And that's exactly what Saul ends up doing. So the heart of this is not a brutal God just going on a killing spree. That's not what this is. It's about the heart of leadership between God and Saul. God uses power very differently than the way we do. Doesn't he? Very differently. This was the leader that everyone wanted, including God, by the way. God wanted Saul to be king. He's the one that picked Saul to be king. They didn't pick him. God did. This is, and this is why Samuel is weeping and grieving. Because Samuel has come looking for a king with another idea. Um, in fact, Samuel was losing sleep. If you remember in chapter 15, verse 11, he stayed up all night crying over this. And now in verse 1 of chapter 16, God has to tell Samuel, okay, enough crying, man. It's time to get up and, and fill your horn. Let's get to work. Notice, by the way, side note, God does not rebuke um, Samuel for grieving. He rebukes Samuel for the length of grieving. In other words, there's a time to grieve, but there's a time to stop and move, and move forward. So it's, there's not, I mean, Jesus grieved. A lot of people grieved. You'll never see God rebuke people for grief in and of itself. But there's a time when it expires. And it's time to, okay, you've grieved it. You've taken stock. Now, now let's, let's, go, let's go do this. Okay. I submit to you. That Samuel is so grieved because he has an idea of a king that he's now finding out that Saul is not. He wants, he's thinking that Saul was going to be this anointed king, this man after God's own heart. And we've just learned that, okay, Saul's not going to be. He's been rejected. I submit to you that Samuel got this idea of a king from his mother. From Hannah. Let me read to you Hannah's prayer 
from chapter 2 about this king. Look, she says this. She says, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes pure and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and, his, and inherit a seat of honor. For the, pillar, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he, set, he has set the world on them. He will, guard the, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for, for not by might shall man prevail. The, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Here it is. This is prophetic now. He will give strength to his king. They didn't have a king at this point, so this is a prophetic moment. And exalt the horn of his anointed. The word in the Hebrew for anointed is the, to describe this king is the word Messiah. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is the word Christ. He will give, anoint, he will, there will be a king and that king will be Mashiach, Christ, Messiah, anointed. No doubt, many scholars agree, I, I think it's a plausible thought that Hannah Passed this vision of this anointed Messiah king onto Samuel. Samuel goes to Saul and thinks he's the one. He anoints him with oil. God, Jehovah, Yahweh picked him. He anoints him with oil. The Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. God gives him a new heart. Saul's out there prophesying. He's winning all these battles. He's kicking butt, taking names. The Philistines are running. Samuel's thinking, my, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing the fulfillment of my mom's vision happen in my day with Saul. And then Saul blows it, and at Samuel's shock, God says, I'm rejecting this guy from being king. No wonder he's grieving. No wonder he's crying. No wonder he's so grieved about this. No doubt, he thought Saul was the guy. So God sends Saul to Samuel, uh, God sends Samuel to Jesse, excuse me. He says, hey, get up. It's time to stop grieving over this. I've picked out another guy, a man after my own heart. So God sends Samuel to Jesse in Bethlehem. And apparently, um, according to the story, apparently Je Jesse knows exactly why he's there. You don't see anywhere that Samuel says, Jesse, I'm going to anoint one of your kids. Jesse just starts presenting his kids before Samuel. Apparently, there, it was known, which is dangerous for both of them, right? Samuel already uh, expressed fear over this. Hey, if Saul finds out, he'll kill me. This is an act of treason. I'm going to anoint another guy king. This is usurping authority. How am I going to get by this? Jesse, participating in this, put his whole family at risk. And yet, that's what's going on. Um, this would have been dangerous. Well, the first kid of Jesse, Eliab, comes before Samuel. He's super tall, impressive. And what does Samuel, who do you think this reminds Samuel of? Saul. Okay. Samuel's grieving over Saul. He's still not getting the lesson. He's still not getting it. He's, he's got expectations. This must be the guy. He's tall. He's impressive. He's the oldest. This is for sure. Done. Got it. I'm gonna, we're going to have another Saul, except maybe a better version. Saul 2.0. This is what it's going to be. But you know, the famous verse, and the one we all know in verse 7, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is saying, in effect, Samuel, I'm not judging someone on the external stuff. That's not how I do this. I'm not looking at their wealth or prestige or stature. It's all about the heart. It's about a person's spirit. It's about a person's character. Nicole and I were just talking about this the other day. She, she had just read this uh, blog or something about how the, the pressure for beauty in our culture, how we venerate in our culture the young, the beautiful. And we tend to, uh, Victoria and I were just talking about, we tend to, we tend to try to shove the, the aged people in homes and forget, and forget about them. 
Where in other cultures, the aged means wisdom, apprenticeship, relationship, passing on of blessings and those types of things. They venerate the aged people in other cultures. Our culture, we tend to see them as less valuable. Because we're so, I don't, in fact, I don't know if there's, there's ever been a culture in history that's more obsessed with youth and beauty than ours. We're just swimming it. It barrages us every day. You cannot get away from it. Um, people are constantly feeling less than because they don't have the body image they're supposed to have or they're getting older or whatever. So they go through each kid here and none of them are it. Now it's crazy to me and I'm sure it boggles your mind too that Jesse completely overlooks David. Completely overlooks him. He's not even, uh, apparently not even a blip on his radar. It's not that he's trying to cover it up. He forgot that David was there. He had to be asked about it. Samuel, probably confused, asked Jesse, is this it? Because I know God sent me to your family. You have another kid somewhere? Which maybe might have been an awkward conversation. Uh, well, there's the youngest. And, Sam, and Samuel says, well, we're not going to sit down until he's there. And the rest is history, so to speak. David gets there. God says, this is the one. Samuel anoints him. Now, here's what we can do. We can either look at this story and say, okay, let's skip the Jesus part and make this right about us. You know, like, like what I just said, our culture is obsessed with youth and beauty. God looks at the character. There are way more important things than how I look. Some of you are going to leave here extremely thankful about that. Some of you will leave depressed. And, <laughs> you know, and we could divide this place based on that, on that message. But how does this point to Jesus? If Jesus is right, which I think he is. And every scripture points to him. How does David's life point to the ultimate David? How does David's life point to the better than David? How does David the anointed point to the anointed that's coming? Well, a few things that I'll briefly talk to you about. One, like David, well, I'll, I'll give you the first one. Then I'll see if you guys can come up with stuff. Like David... Jesus was and still is completely overlooked. He was not what the world would have picked. No one was impressed enough with Jesus to think that he was... In fact, even his own disciples were following him around for a long time before they figured it out. Okay, you're great. Okay, you do miracles. Maybe you're a prophet. Finally, Mark chapter 8 dawns on Peter. I think you're the Christ. Took him a while. The Bible says there was no beauty that attracted us to him. He wasn't taller than the rest. He didn't walk into a room with a halo and beautiful blue eyes where we could just know, ah, Jesus, right? In fact, the story of Judas Iscariot kissing Jesus you know what that was for? It was to ID him. It was to ID him. How do we know? How are we going to know, you know, Judas gets the, the temple guard together. We're going to go arrest Jesus. Which one is he? How are we going to know? Hmm, let me think about that. Okay, the one, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll kiss the one that it is. Okay, good idea. Jesus, um, he wasn't attractive. He was from the wrong town. He wasn't from some metropolitan center. He was from Bethlehem, or excuse me, from Nazareth. He hailed from Nazareth, some no place area. One of the disciples said, what good can come out of Nazareth? In fact, Nazareth was a city that immediately discounted him as a, as a candidate for the Messiah. To, was it Philip? Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Immediately discounted. Can't be right. I found the Messiah. Uh-uh, not if he's from there. He didn't come up through the right channels. Jesus was not political. He, was, he wasn't military. He, had no, he, didn't, he wasn't trained how to get a Roman army out of the Holy Land. Even today, the Jesus of the Bible is not our world's choice. Even today. Our world doesn't understand it because they're looking at the outward appearance so they don't consider Jesus. 
We're attracted to impressive, powerful leaders that speak their mind and are strong and say the right things or have skills or education and all of those things come up from prominent families, you know, as a Kennedy or a, or a, a Clinton or a Bush or somebody, whoa, they're, they're bred for this. Jesus was and is missed because from the world's vantage point, Jesus is someone who is weak. He was a peasant, subjugated under a foreign nation from birth. Okay, here's the big one for me. This one, how else does the life of David speak to the life of Jesus? Are you ready for this one? Hold on to your seats. I hope I can unpack it for you. I hope it's not underwhelming because I just built it up. But for me, it was big. Both David and Jesus, you ready for this? Both David and Jesus must suffer to become king. Both David and Jesus must suffer to become king. David is anointed king as a kid while Saul is still on the throne. And Jonathan, an amazing person in his own right, is the next logical heir to the throne. He's the up-and-comer. And as the story goes, the story continues, David suffers immense persecution for years and years and years and years at the hand of Saul. And listen, it is this very suffering that prepares David to be the king that he's already been anointed to be. This suffering, compare it to Saul. Saul went right into power. He was anointed and immediately became king. He didn't didn't know what it was like to trust God. David had to trust God. Lived as a criminal, as a vagabond, out on the outskirts with this renegade team running for his life for years and years and years and years. He had to trust God. God was putting the metal in him that he needed to be the king that he'd been anointed to be. The same is with Jesus. We see this in Jesus for for the redemption that Jesus brought with his kingdom only came through suffering. The story of Jesus' birth, life, and death, in the words of N.T. Wright, is the story of how God became king. It was through suffering. Resurrect, here's the the Christian uh, formula. Resurrection life, blessing, health, resurrection life, comes through crucifixion. Life via crucifixion. It's the story of how Jesus became king. It's the story about how God became king. This is how Jesus, Jesus, like David, let me use the words of the writer to the Hebrews, quote, was made perfect through his obedience in suffering. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 13. Jesus was made perfect through how he suffered. Oh boy, more on that coming soon. Okay, really important. Thirdly, both Jesus and David are given a job to do, anointed, and then they're, they're anointed by the Spirit to get it done. They're given a job to do, a promise, you will become king, and then they're anointed to get it done. Um, let me get, can I get a little nerdy? Can we get nerdy here for a second? Nerd out, man. Um, in a sense, okay, you know, Messiah is an office. Okay? Messiah is an office. When did Jesus become, when did Logos, the the best word, when when the Bible describes Jesus before his incarnation, what does it call him? I just said it. Logos. In the beginning was the word, Logos, right? That's that's, uh, Jesus throughout all of eternity. So picture, I wish I had a PowerPoint, but picture Jesus through all of eternity and then Logos comes down and becomes human, becomes the God-man, Jesus Christ, or Jesus. And when is he anointed? When is he anointed to fulfill what the, the calling on his life, the office of Messiah? What, what's that? Before, before, how far before his crucifixion? Yes, baptism. Baptism. Jesus lived 
as God-man, Logos in the flesh, until his baptism where he accepted the mission and he's anointed, just like David, he's anointed to fulfill this mission. And what's the mission? Just like David, he's going to become king, but cosmic king of the universe. That's why when we talk about the gospel events, you're going to hear me, but not others, unfortunately, say it's his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and really important, his ascension. Because it's the ascension of Jesus where he's ruling and reigning as king alongside of his father in heaven. But the, the road to that was through suffering, was through the cross. For that, he needed to be anointed. What happened right after he was baptized and anointed for this mission? What's that? He was tempted. Renee, you're absolutely right. He was tempted by the devil. The spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted to suffer. It's, it's just like David. David's anointed. He's got a promise. You will be king. But to get there, you've got to go through some suffering. But I'm going to anoint you to do it. I'm going to give you this, the strength, the power of God to do it. And what does it say at the end of our uh, verse 13? And the Spirit of God rushed upon David from that day forward. God gave him the spirit he needed to go through the future that he didn't know was coming. And the same with Jesus. Jesus was Logos. He became Messiah or took on Messiah at baptism. He said, yes, I will do this mission. He has a promise from God to be king. And he goes into a life of unparalleled suffering for you and I to save us from our sins. And then he says to you and me, follow me. So, now we come to you and me. Now we come to us. Do you see how it changes everything? Everything's different now. And yet everything's the same, but it's different. He says, follow me. Look, the Bible is not about how you, were, you are redeemed without suffering. The Bible is how you are redeemed through suffering. Really important difference. There's a sect of Christianity that basically says we shouldn't suffer. You suffer that you're in sin. There's something wrong with you. And Jesus plainly said, you will go through suffering in this life. That's what it's about. But God is doing something redemptive through it. Now listen. If I skipped Jesus, you might hear me say that you will save yourself through suffering. And, and for a lot of us that are suffering, that'll give you some hope. You'll go, okay, yeah. This suffering is the way that I'm going to save myself and, become, and make myself a better person. It's very Americana. It's very, oof, yes, right? But, no, through suffering, Jesus has saved you from the penalty of sin. Let me just, let's just get this right. Through Jesus' suffering, he saved you and me from the penalty of sin, which is eternal punishment and separation from God. But, Christians, testify. Give me an amen. We may be saved from the penalty of sin, but isn't it true we still need to be saved from the power of sin in our lives? Preach? Holla? Yes. Absolutely. We've been saved from the penalty of sin through the suffering of Christ, but now he says, I want to save you from the power of sin. Follow me. That kind of life which means freedom from the power of sin, what, what we uh, theologians call sanctification. That kind of life, resurrection life, is through the way of the cross, is through suffering. And, we've, and here's the thing. It's not through your own willpower. It's not through yourself. We have been anointed to do this. We've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Let me read a great verse for you if I can find where I put it, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, we're all now little messiahs. We're little anointeds, you could say. 
it says this, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has, here's the word, anointed us. You're anointed. I'm anointed. If you're in Christ, you're anointed and who has also put his seal on us, giving us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What is he saying? He's saying, look, Jesus, through his suffering, has saved us all from the penalty of sin. That's eternal separation from God. Most of Western Christianity stops right there, and it's, a, it's sad. Because God wants to give us freedom from the power of sin, even right now. It's an ongoing thing, progressively. But the way to get to that point is not, he doesn't sprinkle, you know, non-sin dust over us one day. Or someday it just clicks in our brain and we, you know, I don't have to sin anymore. No. It's through suffering. I remember Jesus called me. And Jesus used Mark chapter 8 to do it. In Mark chapter 8, I quoted it in our worship time, but in Mark chapter 8, Jesus gathers all the crowds around him and his disciples. That's both believers and non-believers. Everybody, this is for everybody. And he says, anyone who wants to come after me, here's the way to do it, must deny himself, take up his cross. So that's more than self-denial and something that's kind of difficult and hard. We're talking about a gruesome self-death and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, that, that word in, that in Greek is psyche. It's talking about yourself, your, your desires, your inner soul, what your soul really wants. Whoever wants to save his life must lose it. In other words, not feed it, must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, what does the word gospel mean? Really important What's that? Say it again. Good news about what? About a kingdom. Every time the gospel's used in the New Testament, it is always referring to a kingdom. It's not good news just in terms of some abstract information that God died on the cross for your sins. It means I'm here to become king. Sign up and follow me. I'm asking for your allegiance and your loyalty to a new godly kingdom. I'm the king of David, the son of David, the greater than David. I've come to become king through suffering. If you want to be a part of my kingdom, sign up and follow me every day. But you must suffer. And, the, and to the degree that you deny that yourself, to that degree, you will be free from the power of sin in the here and now. That's the fuller story here. Not the stopping Jesus died on the cross so that when I die, I go to this place called heaven. You, you won't find that in the Bible. Is it true? Sure. But you will not find that emphasized in the Bible. We stop right there in the West when it's much more than that. Saved does not mean sometime later. It means now and forever. In fact, the word saved is used in three tenses throughout the Old Testament. It's in the past tense, God has saved me. Paul uses it in the present tense, God is saving me as I live a life of suffering and deny myself, the resurrection life is coming into me and it comes into me so that I can die so that more resurrection comes into me, so that I'm anointed to keep dying to myself, so that more resurrection comes into me, so that I'm anointed to keep dying to myself, so that more resurrection... That's how it works. That's the Christian life. That's sanctification. I'm going to die to myself so that life can come into my marriage, so I can keep dying to myself, so that life can be into my family and my kids, that I keep dying to myself so that life goes to everybody. That is the Christian rhythm. Death. Life, so that I can die. Life, death, life. That's it. Galatians 5. We walk in line with the Spirit. And then Paul uses salvation, saved, in a future tense that someday we will ultimately be saved. 
It's a much fuller word than, when we, than where we stop at it. And we do the next generation of Christians a major disservice when we leave it at, hey, if you, say, if you believe X, Y, and Z and say some prayer that's never recorded in the Bible and then forget about it for 15, 20 years until you have a near-death experience and then die, it's a cool because at some camp way back when you said yes to Jesus and you're going to go to heaven. No wonder 70, 80% of the next generation is leaving the church. It's so disconnected from the here and now. God wants to give us life now, right now also. But it comes through death and suffering, see. Just like David, just like Jesus. Now in Christ, we are all anointed. And that means through your suffering, God is doing some beautiful things. He's preparing you. The Bible would say that you are progressively being changed from glory to glory into the image of God. The Christian life is both a destination and a journey, I guess you could say. Through what you're suffering, through the heartache you've experienced, through the struggle and the wrestling with your sin, through the confession, through the, the confusion and not knowing all of those things, the, just the betrayal, anything, all of it, God is using it with your participation. He's using it in your life to change you more and more and more, growing you up into the fullness of the maturity of the, of the image of Christ, as Ephesians chapter 4 says. Growing you up. In other words, you're growing like a plant into the image of the, the God-man into the image of, of God, the true Imago Dei. That's what's going on with you. Now, here's the thing. You have a part to play in this. I have a part to play in this. Galatians 5 says, we walk in line in participation with the Holy Spirit, which means if you don't, if you resist, you can stunt your growth. You can delay the lessons. You can take the long way around. But the more you walk in obedience, the more you'll grow. Well, gosh, Mike, this sounds like salvation by works. No, it's salvation to works. You're not saved by your works, but you're saved to your works so that you can live a powerful, healthy, wonderful, amazing, growing, thriving life and bless your family and your community. And everywhere your foot would tread, the kingdom of God would go. That's where we're going for until the day that we come to heaven. What is the church? It's you going out, dispersing from here with the life that's inside of you, caring about people, caring about their needs, showing compassion, speaking the truth in love, confessing Christ, the gospel. Use your words. I believe in God, man. Jesus loves you. That's how you study the Bible. The one rule to rule them all, Christocentric. It's all about him. You might be thinking, is that even really truly possible? Seriously, you're going to tell me that Genesis chapter 5 Adam begot this guy, 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 is really all about Jesus? Yes. Come to my class when I set it up and I'll show you, I'll show you how it works. I'll show you how, how it works. But it's, th this is the only way to do it, according to Jesus. Let's stand and let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, David, as great as he was, he also had some, he had a real dark side to him. Saul was disappointing. David, in his way, was disappointing. And yet both point to you in so many ways. 
So many times, Jesus, we read the Bible thinking, oh, this is about me attaining salvation by what I do. But then we realize, no. It's about the true greater than David, anointed, that attained us salvation through what he did so that now we can go out and live the same life, anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show us the truth of all this. And I pray that you would give us the strength and the power. Lord, we can't die to ourselves by ourselves. That just means willpower and it, 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 it either ends up in a crushing because we fail or pride because we actually succeed in an area and we feel pretty good about ourselves. But Lord, when we realize that you did it and you've empowered us to do it, all glory goes to you. Lord, would you show us how this rhythm called Christianity works, how this life called Christianity works, this life of crucifixion and more life and health and hope. For the glory of God in our world, in Jesus' name, amen.